We are in the book of 1 John, if you will make your way there. If, and the title of my message this morning is, Do We Really Love One Another? We've been working through the book of 1 John together here on Sunday mornings to answer the question that each and every Christian must answer and discover for themselves. Do you truly have eternal life? Are you truly born again? Are you truly a child of God? As John wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote it so people would believe that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. But then he wrote his first letter, the book of 1 John, or the letter of 1 John, and states very clearly in 1 John 5.13 that he has written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Know for sure that you have eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we've been going through these chapters, through these verses, and allowing them to probe our hearts and minds. As they're asking us to really consider where we stand on the particular issue in which they pose, allowing us to discover if we are truly in the faith or maybe not at all. And in each case, we are better off. If we find that we are in the faith, then we can have that assurance and move forward in our faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. If we find that we are not in the faith and we are not truly a Christian, then we can uh, take that and get right with God and then know for sure that we are saved and we are one of His. The Christian life is not passed down through tradition or through heritage. It is not a family heirloom in which that can be willed on to our children who come after us. Christianity is received by personally receiving the free gift of God who is Christ Jesus, repenting of our sins and putting our faith and trust in Him, understanding what He has done for us there on the cross and in the resurrection. That's how Christianity is obtained, by faith alone. For many, especially the Jewish believers, when the New Testament was being written, this was very difficult for them. For they could measure and ascertain their uh, righteousness with God by the manner in which they kept the law of God as Jewish individuals. Now, Jesus instituting this new relationship, this new covenant, is saying now it's by faith alone that one has and will receive eternal life. But what kind of faith? Uh, another word, belief, trust. What kind of belief, what kind of trust, what kind of faith leads to everlasting life? It's a faith that plays out in and through our lives. It's a, it's a faith, a trust, a belief that is demonstrated in the choices that we make and in the actions in which we conduct ourselves. That's how we know that the faith is genuine within us. That the belief, that the trust is genuine within us. And as we've been going through this letter, we've discovered that in chapter 2, John gives us in the 29 verses that are found there in this chapter, three 
tests of assurance that we can uh, take and examine ourselves by to see if we are in the faith and to assure ourselves either we are or we are not. And the first one is the moral assurance, the moral test. Are we walking in accordance to what we believe? The second, as which we will look at this morning, verses 7 through 17, is the social assurance and the manner that we interact with one another. Do we demonstrate this incredible, selfless, unconditional love that Jesus Christ demonstrated as he walked this earth those 33 years? Are we manifesting that same love towards one another? And in our text this morning, we are going to discover that the demographic that which God looks at the world, he looks at the world and sees, is actually a demographic of two. When we talk about demographics today, we could be talking about uh, social groups based on age, based on nationality, based on economic status. But God looks at the world in one of two ways. He looks at the demographics of the world and sees two different groups of people. For there are two kingdoms that are displayed here on this earth. There is the kingdom of God, and then there is this kingdom of this world. And since the crucifixion and the resurrection, the inauguration of the kingdom of God has now begun. And as the church continues to move forward, and individuals come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, the population of that kingdom grows. And we conduct ourselves, or we are required and supposed to conduct ourselves differently than those who are in the kingdom of this world. Each kingdom has a king. The kingdom of God, of course, the king is God himself. For the, for the king of this world is the prince and the power of the air, Satan himself. Now, people don't want to observe our world in such a manner because of the overall meta-narrative that that creates and that they are now subjected to. But that's what the Bible clearly teaches. Now, in, in saying that, I am not saying that God is creating an us-and-them environment. Though we are subjects of the kingdom of God, let us understand we are there because of the grace of God and nothing that we have done ourselves. Therefore, we have no reason to boast. We have no reason to be prideful and should therefore act in humility and in graciousness and in love with those who are not in the kingdom of God, knowing that the only reason that we are is because of the grace of God. So we are no better than anyone else. So John looks at us and says, okay, if you are truly of the kingdom of God, then you will love each other as Christ loved you. And if you are truly of the kingdom of God, you are going to have a disdain for the world. He is not referring to the people of the world. He is referring to the world system that those uh, who are part of this world system 
conduct themselves to demonstrate that they are truly under a different reign from a different king. And so John is going to ask us very clearly, do you or we really love one another? And as we begin, we begin in verse 7. And he states, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard, have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Well, that may appear to be a little bit of a tongue twister, but what is he talking about? Well, let us remember when Jesus Christ was on the earth and he was teaching and he was being challenged. And so he said to them, and behold, a lawyer stood up, put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. The lawyer had the right answer, but missed the heart of it. And what Jesus is trying to draw to the forefront is this, that in the new covenant, in the new arrangement that Christ developed between God and man through his death and resurrection was a relationship of love between our heavenly father and you and I as his children. This was meant to be the greatest commandments of them all. Now notice that sometimes the smallest words of the Bible have the greatest impact. He is asking that we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. The word all there should be troubling to you. There means that there's no room for anything else to occupy that place of preeminence in your personal life. It must be God that you give that affection to. But we also must talk about the word love for a moment. Because today, if I were to ask 10 people to define love for me, I most likely would get 10 answers. Because we have truly changed the understanding of this word love in our culture today and have really watered it down and cheapened it a great deal since its conception. When Jesus talks about love, he is talking about a love that sacrifices itself for another. He's talking about a love that loves unconditionally. He's talking about a love that is long-suffering and is patient and is kind. He's talking about a love that Jesus demonstrated by coming to this earth, stepping out of heaven as God, coming to this earth, walking for 33 years amongst the people, being subjected to his own creation, being then tortured and died and rising again. He's talking about a unique love for one another. 
He's talking about a love that we must first and foremost love God with. We must love God unconditionally. Too many today put conditions upon their relationship with God in one way or another. God, I will believe you. I will follow you. I will obey you. I will do what is right if you do this for me. And unfortunately, God doesn't work that way because he's saying, I'm already done something for you that was so much greater than what you are requesting. I sent my only begotten son. And often when God then doesn't perform to one's personal uh, bequest, they say, God has let me down. God has shown me that he isn't real. Well, God is just not fulfilling your whim. He's not... He is not uh, communicating to you that he doesn't care or love you. He's just not performing to your beck and call. Too many relate to God in this way. Often we ask ourselves, we should ask ourselves the questions as Christians, would we love God no matter what? It's easy to love God when everything is perfect. But if everything begins to go south... Can we still love God in that manner? This is a probing question. But understand that we love Him on the basis of the fact that He first loved us. So He is not asking us to generate this love in and of ourselves. He is saying to base it upon the fact that He has already loved us and demonstrated that love sacrificially through His Son Jesus by allowing Christ to go to the cross to pay a penalty that we could not pay for ourselves. But the love doesn't end there. The love continues. That unconditional love for us, that He has for us, that motivated Him to do everything that He did on our behalf. And now He's saying, love me in the same way. And the love that we manifest in this manner is a fruit of the Spirit. It is an evidence that we are in Christ and that the Spirit of God is working in us when we can love each other in this sacrificial way, this unconditional way, this unique and profound way. Because it's not something that would come natural to an individual apart from Christ which we'll talk about in just a minute. So as we look at this, he's saying, I'm not writing to you something new. This is something that was from the very beginning, but I'm bringing it to the forefront. And so in that regard, it may be new that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. It is that second portion of the two greatest commandments that we will look at today. In fact, we originally read this in Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. And then Jesus takes it to a whole new level when he states, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And notice verse 35. And by this, all the people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the question is now posed to us or will be posed, 
Do we really love one another? Notice verse 8, though, with me before we go any farther. He says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, meaning I'm bringing it to the forefront. It is taking a greater precedence. It is going to be our banner going forward. That's what he is stating here. Which is true in him, that's what we saw demonstrated in Christ, and in you, because. This is something that is lacking in the discussion of our love and our interaction with one another what follows this word because. It is so important that you see this. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. When Christ died and rose again, that unique event that historically has been challenged and proven time and time again, As Christ rose on the third day, the inauguration of the kingdom of God began to be present here in this world. And as the kingdom of God started in such humble beginnings there in this little land of Israel 2,000 years ago, uh, through this uh, carpenter who was 33 years old when he died, never traveling 100 miles farther than his hometown, Today, 2,000 years later, there is roughly 2 billion Christians around the world. The kingdom of God has grown greatly. And in the people of God, who is meant to represent the body of Christ as Christ ascended to heaven, not to die again, the church, you and I, became the body of Christ and he is our head. And we are his hands and feet here on this earth. And in us, the people of the world should be able to look upon us and say, something's different about them. Look at the manner in which they love one another and look at the manner in which they serve one another. Look at the manner in which they lay down their lives for one another. There's something supernatural going on with these people. We should be a light in the darkness. We should be the glimpse of the kingdom that is still yet to come. People should see in us that in which God is doing that people of the world may know that we truly serve God. What did he just say that we just read? By this all the people will know that you are my disciples, followers, if you have love for one another. This is it. This is what he is saying here. Why? Because the world system and the reign of the evil one himself, Satan, that began at the fall of man when Adam and Eve fell, and we believe in a historical Adam and Eve. And as Adam and Eve fell, dominion was given to Satan. At the time of the cross, Christ purchased back that which man gave to Satan through his own death, and through the resurrection, his kingdom is now birthed, and in its growth and development until his return, the world should see that which is still yet to come in us. Big picture. And we can demonstrate that big picture, that big meta-narrative, by simply loving one another as Christ has loved us. And this is what John's saying. 
that one who truly loves in this way must have been changed from the inside out, must now realize that there's a greater story happening than that just of the deterioration of the world, that something more is going on. Because this world is passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Verse 17, the last verse of our text for this morning. Notice what he says again. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We will have no desire to fulfill the will of God. We will have no desire to love one another if we are living for ourselves and the temporal pleasures of this world. There's no getting around that. We're going to talk about that more in just a minute. But I want to stress this morning to you that our loving one another in this way is meant to be an example, a light, a taste of what is still yet to come and to be established for all eternity. Important, verse 9, here's the test. Now, whoever says that he is in the light, meaning understands who God is, has a relationship with God, anyone who says that he's in the light, and that's what that means, and hates his brother, let's be honest, hates his brother, is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Today, I have been reading many articles stating very clearly, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. And they stated that frankly, that boldly. And the church, of course, meaning the people of God and so forth. John's saying here that anyone who has that kind of an attitude is lying to themselves. People are trying to write off the church in one way or another because of the failures of people within the church. And yet God says very clearly that it is not people in whom we shall have our eyes upon, but Him. Because people fail us, and people will always fail us, let us not throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that Jesus failed us. It's sad when a Christian does not live their Christian life responsibly, and that needs to be addressed. It's sad when Christians do things that are absolutely hypocritical. It is a sad testimony of that fact. It's sad when Christians are disobedient to the Word of God. But now John is challenging us. Are these people actually Christians? I'm not talking about the person who makes an individual mistake. I'm talking about a person who continues on in their life as nothing has changed and nothing has taken effect and that what they believe in God hasn't really radically transformed their life in any way, shape, or form. I think that's inconsistent with what the Bible tells us. 
I personally don't think that it is possible to have a true experience relationship with God, a true relationship with God, without being changed in some way at some time. Now, it might start slowly. It might not be as evident as we would like it to be. But they won't continue on in this indifference towards God and towards God's people. So let's be honest with ourselves. Do we really love one another? Because that is what John is asking us. That is what he is probing us to consider. The type of love that we described last week for you in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the type of love that Jesus demonstrated through his entire life. It is not a love that the world demonstrates. The love that the world demonstrates and that we see and, and uh, observe for ourselves is a, is a love that is self-seeking and self-satisfying. Where the love that God has, has others at the attention or in the place of prominence. They are willing to sacrifice themselves for someone else. But the love that individuals have today that is so casually given and then retracted is a love that is often self-seeking. What can I get from this relationship? How can I benefit? What, um, what, what, you know, what can you do for me? And then as soon as that ceases and they're no longer happy and satisfied with that type of love, they just kind of dismiss it altogether and they say, I have fallen out of love with you. The love of the Bible is a choice. It's a choice. I find that one of the hardest things to do is to forgive others as Christ has forgiven me. How about you? If someone has wronged you, it is very difficult to forget that wrong. In fact, they often, you can often go back and when you see a person after 20 years of not seeing them and when the, 20 years ago they locked you in your locker in, in eighth grade and now you see them at Walmart and it's still hard to get past the fact that you were locked in your locker for a day and the janitor had to come and save you. It's hard to forgive. But every time I am faced with that reality... If someone has wronged me and I am then faced with a decision to forgive or to harbor my bitterness, the motivation for me to choose forgiveness is not based on anything that they have done. The basis for me choosing to forgive them is the basis that Christ has forgiven me. Because that's what he says. As I have forgiven you, now you go and forgive others. Now, when you put it in that context, it's much more motivating than anything else could ever be. He's saying the same thing with the issue of love. He's saying, now you go and love others as I have loved you simply because I have loved you. Now you go and love one another. In the same basis, with the same motivation. For example, the world today would agree with three of the four Greek words for love. The first is phileo, and it's used many times within the Bible, and it simply means a friendship love. Then there's the Greek word eros, which means an erotic type of love. I don't have to make any, uh, I don't have to put any effort into convincing you that today sex is often equated with love. 
that the highest form or the highest manner in which I can demonstrate my love for another person is physical intimacy. There's a third word in the Greek called storge, which is a love that is used for an inanimate, inanimate object. But today we use one love for everything. I love pizza, I love my car, I love my wife. Not necessarily that order, please. <laughs> Give me a little grace, okay? But Jesus says agape. It's a word that was seldomly used at that time and that he redefined by his own personal life actions. He's saying, now I want you to love each other in that way. And if you say that you hate your brother and you are not loving him in this way, he says three very clear things that we must understand. Number one, look in with me in verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Number one, he is in darkness. He is unsaved. Number two, he is walking in darkness. That is, he's living in sin. And number three, he doesn't know where he is going for his or her eternal destination. That's what John is saying here. But once I am radically transformed by the love of God, once I experience the new birth that I can have, the new start that I can have in Jesus, once I experience that love that He lavishes upon me, then I can turn around and love my brother or my neighbor as myself. God knew what you loved the most. It is you. It is you. The only way that you are going to allow your love for another to be sacrificial, unconditional, is if you hold a larger meta-narrative than just seeking the pleasures of the temporal moment. Jesus Christ died on the cross to demonstrate his greatest act of love towards humanity. There is no doubt that he at that moment provided for us the greatest need in which we had. And yet, he would not see the fruit of that action until eternity that is still yet to come. Jesus Christ operated in that large meta-narrative of a new heavens, a new earth, and the kingdom of God being physically established here on this earth. But if we as individuals are living for the moment, living for the day, living for this temporal world, if we are living for ourselves, we are going to resist loving each other in this manner because it won't produce what we want it to produce in the moment. So he goes on to say in verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The little children is young believers. I'm writing to you, fathers, mature believers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. 
I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. He is stating in a very interesting way that you who are in Christ, no matter if you are a new believer or a young, young man believer in those teenage years as a believer or as an older mature Christian, you are in a better position than one who is in this world. And you know God. You know that He exists. You know as a mature believer that He was from eternity beginning till eternity end. Meaning the meta narrative has become real to you. Overcoming the evil one is to understand that there is something greater than this world itself. It is the kingdom of God. And John is saying that for what I'm about to say next, you need to understand this. If you truly understand the nature of God, then you are going to understand why I am about to write to you verses 15, 16, and 17. And as he continues, he says, do not love the world, that is the world system, that is all that is in the world that would distract and to draw you away from that which God would have for you. Or the things in the world. Now if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. What he is stating here for us is that if you have your affections attached to the temporal nature of this world, and everything that would attract you, drawing from the old nature, the nature that lived to seek pleasure for itself, the nature that sought uh, to um, self-preserve itself. When you look at the world and all the things that are in the world, the world is going to try to draw and and distract you and to move you away from your heavenly Father. The battle is the reality of this. The world is tangible. It's right in front of us. It is physical. And this is what we look at and we have now equated it with reality, haven't we? This is reality. Everything that is around us that is physical is reality. But if we read the Bible and we look at things from God's perspective, would we not say that then truly reality is the manner in which God sees everything? And if that is the case, then we are not going to be swayed by the temporal temptations of this world. We are going to stand strong in the wake of those temptations and not be drawn away. And if we are living for this world, we are most definitely living for ourselves and therefore the betterment of ourselves in in the light of all that we know that God has done for us and would have for us. Now, as a Christian, am I advocating that we be irresponsible to the world around us? I'm not saying that at all. The Bible doesn't teach that. Am I saying that we do not have uh, obligations that are tangible here in this world? For example, as I get married, do I not have the, the obligation of supporting my wife? I do. If I have children, does, am I not obligated to be a parent? I do, and to provide for them. 
But these are all godly things that the Bible, uh, you know, con- uh, condones and allows for and to allow us to occupy to enjoy Him even further. But when it comes to the things of this world, there are things that would play on that temporal nature and I'll do what is expedient at the moment than what is better for the long term. I read an interesting article not too long ago about the savings habits of Americans today. Americans aren't saving money for a rainy day like they once did. You know, many were very diligent that when they got paid, a certain percentage went to their bills and a certain percentage went to savings, etc. And you always heard it from your father or your grandparents or whatever, whoever it may be, I'm saving for the rainy day. They were looking forward, you know, thinking that, you know, one day I will not be able to work. I may, I may become elderly. I may become in need of assistance and so on and so forth. And I must have some kind of provision to support me at that time. We have found that our culture today is so driven on the moment that even their savings habits reflect that moment-driven perspective that people have today. That tomorrow, for some reason, is never going to come. Or if it is going to come, I'll just worry about it then. Again, it demonstrates that they have very short-sighted goals And therefore, they are probably looking at the moment rather than the long-term objective. As one wrote about the world, he says, The world here is not the planet on which we live or the natural creation about us. Rather, it is the system which man has built up in effort to make himself happy without Christ. As As he goes on to say, Someone has defined it as human society insofar as it's organized on a wrong principles and characterized by base desires, false values, and egoism. As one philosopher, Phileo, wrote, he said, and he concurs, that it is impossible for the love of the world to coexist for the love of God, just as it is impossible for light and darkness to be present at the same time. In the Old Testament, Israel was constantly bombarded with this reality. Were they going to serve God or the pagan gods of the surrounding nations? And you know how they fared. They were back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And yet at the end, God established them in Christ. And what they didn't fulfill, Christ fulfilled perfectly. And we saw that conflict that they constantly lived within and we share that conflict today as either we will hold our allegiance to God or that we will be swayed by the temporal realities of this world. Listen to these words again after all that we have said that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. It has a whole new meaning When he talks about the desires of the flesh, he's talking about those things that we covet, that may be something of someone else's. The desires of the eyes are things that we lust after, that we see. The pride of life is boasting in those things that we have accomplished and have done. And the material wealth that we have accumulated. 
But again, if we are set on eternity, if that is our focus, then those things will pale in comparison and those temptations will become faulty. Listen to what Paul wrote when he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only at his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of, the de- of death, even the death of the cross. That's what Christ did. In his eternal perspective, loved us in such a dynamic way and now asks us to love one another. James hits us hard on this subject when he states, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. William MacDonald wrote, he says, when a bank is breaking, smart people do not deposit in it. When the foundations is tottering, intelligent builders do not proceed. Concentrating on this world is like a rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So wise people do not live for a world that is passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Please know what I'm saying. God has called us to love each other as Christ has loved the church so the world may know that we are truly his followers. If we are going to demonstrate that reality that we are truly Christians, then we must love each other in that way. He tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. He also tells us that there is no real reward in loving a person who simply loves you, but also loving your enemy. As Christians, the people of this world are, are people just like you and I. And we need to love them also. We need to show them the love of Christ within us. The same love that Christ demonstrated towards those who were far from him in the Gospels. But let me qualify this love for a moment. This love is not a love that tolerates everything and only seeks the happiness of that individual. The love that Christ loved us with was a righteous love. Christ was willing to say, what you're doing is wrong, but I still love you. Repent from what you are doing and sin no more. So when we love those individuals in the world, let us not be tempted to love as the world loves. And that love is to only seek that individual's perfect happiness that they have decided for themselves. I know this sounds bizarre. But if you truly love them, won't you love them the way God loves them? If they are about to do something that you know is going to harm them, 
Can you truly say that you love them without warning them previously before entering into that harm? I think this is so astonishing when we look at it in its totality. And as John said, let us not miss these words. As this world is passing away, let us be mindful of the fact that the light is now dawning. It is shining. And as the world gets darker and darker, the light gets brighter and brighter. And one day that'll, the, the return of Jesus Christ will usher in that new moment for all of us. That new heaven, new earth, no more death no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more injustice, no more sin, and no more death. I pray that our church would be a loving church and that the world around us would see the love that we have for one another and know that we are His. And allowing us ourselves to love in that manner should assure our hearts that we are in Christ.